following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. One of the root fundamental problems of mankind is that we do not worship God appropriately. And in fact, we worship created things instead, and in so doing, we dishonor God. So if the gospel is to have any effect, if the gospel is truly restoring us to right relationship with God, then one of the first things that must be reordered and restored is our right worship of God. And so the first thing that Paul addresses as he talks, you know, turns from this shift of what the gospel is to how it should impact our life, he addresses this issue of what worship is. And uh, really what he wants us to uh, answer is, what is the right, appropriate, and fitting gift to now bring to God in worship? We do no longer bring bulls and lambs and, and, and material offerings like that. Uh, we, are, we, we bring a different kind of gift. Um, and so he explains that that gift is ultimately ourselves. We come bringing a different kind of offering in, in our own life and our own being. Uh, we are to bring a living sacrifice, right? And thankfully, he puts in the word living. <laughs> you know, we bring ourselves, but thankfully, we bring it as a living sacrifice, right? We're not jumping off tall buildings or anything. You know, we, uh, it's not that kind of sacrifice. But we now, as the giver, give ourselves. And we'll talk a bit more what that means in a minute. But first, let's look at these two words uh, at the end of verse 1, where we get the idea of worship from. Because if you remember, how many of you remember memorize this verse in the King James. Anybody? Okay. Well, you really should. I don't think you can really be a Christian if you haven't memorized these verses in the King James. Okay. So you, you have homework, right? I beseech you, therefore, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies to God, a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable... King James. Remember King James. Your reasonable service, right? Your reasonable service. Well, these last two words, reasonable... And service create all kinds of confusion about this passage. And here's why. Uh, let's take the second word first, the word worship, the word service. Right? Um, why did the original King James, some of the older translations, choose to translate it service? Right? Well, the word um, comes and was used in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, to translate the service of the priests and the Levites in the temple. Right? So it does mean, on one hand, it does mean service. It can also be translated to mean worship. But when you look at how it was used of the priests and Levites in the temple, it was their service, meaning their temple duty. So whatever they did as people would bring their sacrifices, as they would bring the offerings, uh, they would, some of them would haul water, they would haul firewood, they, would, they had this whole army of people to make the uh, to facilitate the offering of these animal sacrifices. And they had to clean the utensils, and they had, to, they had to wear special robes. All of that work, all of that labor, was described as their service, right? It was their labor, it was their service, their ministry to God. But uh, it was not separate from or different from worship, right? And in fact, the Old Testament concept was that, that for the priests and the Levites, this service was their worship, Right? 
They, they didn't offer animals. They offered themselves in service to God. And by helping facilitate the offering of the offerings, the, the, the sacrifices, they were worshiping. So uh, is it service or worship? Well, it's really the service, the worship of service. It's a service that's given to God as a form of worship. And Paul uses that word. He could have used others, but he uses that word because in this context, it really has the idea that our worship in this sense is no longer simply an offering, something we bring and present to God, but much like the duty or the service of the priests in the temple, now we bring our, our, our living bodies, a living sacrifice, and now our service is offered to God as our offering, as our gift, as our sacrifice. So now what we do uh, in daily life, what we do coming to church, what we do uh, teaching Sunday school or leading worship, what we do cleaning bathrooms or cooking food or doing anything that's done as service to God now qualifies as worship. So he's uh, broadening the category of worship a little bit. But the focus here is clearly the worship. He says this offering that you give, it is your worship. This is what worship is now. right? Um, so does that mean that our singing is not worship? Well, our singing ought to be worship. It can be, right? Um, and certainly praise is one category, one portion or part of what worship is, but it's only one sliver of it. Worship is expanded to be much broader, much fuller. So you can worship God singing praise songs on Sunday morning, uh, done rightly. You could also, in theory, worship God singing like some Beatles song, right? Given the right heart behind it, right? Uh, it broadens it that everything that we do can be done as an offering. It can be done in honor and worship to God. Now, I would suppose there are probably some songs you couldn't give in worship to God because they wouldn't be necessarily appropriate, right? But it, it greatly broadens and expands what worship is. The other word, he, he uh, qualifies this worship. He says it's not just worship, but it's a certain kind of worship. It is a a logical worship, a rational, a reasonable, King James, a reasonable worship. Okay? Well, the newer translations mostly translate it spiritual worship. So you might think, what does spiritual and logical have to do with each other? Certainly anything spiritual must be illogical. Or not, right? Um, well, this word also is a word that can be translated either way. It has both of those meanings. Um, it's actually the word from which we get the word logical. Okay, it's the Greek word logikos. It's where we get the word logical from. Um, so I'm sure you're dying to know how logical came to mean um, spiritual. Well, I'm glad you asked, all you word scholars out there. Um, it, it literally means logical or rational, uh, but... And it was not used that way in Scripture as spiritual. But in Greek philosophy, and then later adopted by Greek Jews who were influenced by Greek thinking, it kind of went something like this. The Greeks believed that, that God was logical, rational, and that man was also logical and rational. And that was something that man and God shared in common. But unlike the beasts or animals, uh, we share in God... A rational mind, right? So they argued that true worship, for, for worship to be fitting, 
it had to make sense, right? It had to correspond with the mind of God. It had to be rational or logical, not just nonsense. So the Greek philosophers looked at a lot of what happened in Greek mythology and Greek worship. And it's interesting, you know, the Greeks were quite logical, quite scientific. Uh, The Greek philosophers and scientists came up with all these uh, very scientific, rational ways of thinking. But then when it came to their worship, they were completely irrational, superstitious, superstitious and illogical. And the Greek philosopher says, that's a disconnect. There's something wrong there. They said, you know, your worship should also be logical. It should make sense. It should have some meaning to it that's not just random and superstitious. Right? So it came to mean spiritual. It came to mean worship that was engaged, that made sense, that actually had some meaning, that you weren't just going through some motion, but there was some uh, thinking process that went behind it. So it was spiritual, but not in the, not spiritual in the sense of holy, but spiritual in the sense of of the spirit, of the inner person. Okay. Um, so, given all that, what does it mean here? Well, it, it really has probably more the idea of spiritual than logical, but not spiritual in the sense of uh, worship is what I do on Sunday morning in church because it's a spiritual place, right? Where it's religious. And then when I go out to my daily life and my secular life, that it's no longer spiritual because out there I just do unspiritual things, secular things. Not, not in that sense. It would be more the sense that spiritual means inner, inward, of the spirit, of the inner person. And it has two kind of senses. One is a sense of a worship that involves the mind and heart as opposed to a worship that simply goes through the motions. And so when we show up on Sunday morning... You could worship by just going through the motions, right? Sing a few songs. Some guy gets up and talks for a long time. He sits down. We sing some more songs. At some point, they pass a bag and you put money in it and you go home, right? And you show up and you go through the steps and you can say, well, I worship God. But you didn't really worship God because you didn't engage with the process. You just went through the motions, right? He says, no, this should be spiritual worship. When we give our lives, our bodies to God... We engage, we think about it, we are intentional and we're thoughtful about what it is we are giving to God in our worship through ourself. Secondly, it has the the sense as spiritual or rational, the sense of, of something that's appropriate for human beings as rational spiritual creatures of God, that it is a worship that honors God by giving Him what He truly wants as opposed to the depraved worship offered by human beings under the power of sin. So as rational, logical beings, we have to ask the question, if I'm going to bring to God an offering, a gift, a sacrifice, what what is it He actually is asking for? What is it God actually wants? Uh, and, And we need to think about that. We need to think. We need to use logic and reason. We need to answer that question carefully. What would be pleasing to God? What is it that He is asking from us? So Paul says that's, that's the heart of our worship. We don't just worship by going through ceremony. We don't just do random acts, right? Which, you know, a lot of the worship we see around us around the world, people go through motions. If you ask them, well, what does it mean? Why do you do that? They would say, well, it's just what we do. I don't know why we do that. It's just what our custom is. Well, as believers, we should never say, well, I don't know why we do that. We should have clear 
uh, answers for the meaning and purpose of what we do that we call worship. Um, so our worship, our gift, which is ourself, uh, must be something that's fitting and appropriate and suitable. Something that God himself would want and that would bring him pleasure, delight, that would truly be a gift to him. And of course, in the Old Testament, the illustration of this is God did ask for certain things. Uh, you were not to bring a pig and offer it. Okay, That was an insult to God because that's not what he wanted. He asked for certain specific things. Same thing's true in our context. So probably the best way to translate this would be um, true worship. Okay, It's true. It is true to our heart. It is true to what God wants. It is true to what we see as rational beings. It's in line with God's purpose and heart. Uh, so all that really uh, describes uh, what, what we mean by spiritual worship. So what then is the basis of this worship? Why do we worship? Okay, what is it that is it the foundation that motivates our worship? Um, well, Paul starts out in verse 1. He says, I, I, I ask, I, in, I entreat you, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God. Right? Uh, the basis or foundation of our worship must be God's mercy. What do we mean by God's mercy? Um, well, Paul has just spent... 11 chapters describing the work of the gospel, the meaning and purpose of the gospel. And at the end of, uh, of these verses, of these chapters, Paul starts hammering uh, the word mercy. He uses that word repeatedly. And for Paul, the word mercy in Romans captures everything that he described in chapters 1 through 11 of Romans. Right? He says the gospel, the work of Christ, his redemption and forgiveness could be summed up in this one simple word, the mercy of God. Right? Uh, synonyms for it would be his gracious kindness, his generous gift of love to us in the person of Christ. It is the work that God has done to, uh, to redeem us. Probably the, maybe the best, uh, or one of the better anyway, um, summaries of this is Romans 5 and 6, where it says, For while we were still weak... Sinful, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person would, would dare to die. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Right? That's the mercy of God. We didn't deserve this. Uh, there's nothing about us that warranted God doing this, but out of His kindness, out of His generous love, He did this for us. He sent His own Son to take the penalty and full uh, wages of our sin upon Himself and to die for us so that we could be restored to the place as sons and daughters of the living God. That's God's mercy. And that is the only true basis for our worship. Worship must always be ultimately a response to who God is and what He has done. And that's what mercy indicates. What has God done for us that we would respond with worship? Well, He has shown us incredible mercy and kindness. Uh, We looked last week at the last part of chapter 11 where Paul breaks out in this incredible hymn of praise, right? He's described all these wonderful mysteries of God and the depth of His being, and he bursts out into this hymn of praise, right? But then he goes, you know, that's, that's not enough. 
It's not enough just to sing a hymn of praise. We must bring, in response to God's mercy, we must bring a suitable offering to Him. Right? And that's what this is about. Uh, but it is an offering, offering we bring in response to God's grace. Now let me look at this two ways. We're going to look first at what would be the wrong motives. What would be the wrong way to bring your offering of yourself? Um, and for me, you know, this, this verse uh, was huge in my, my coming to Christ. Romans 12.1, God really spoke to me and challenged me. I need to give my life to Christ. And I did when I was 14 years old. But I didn't really understand it all very well. And I certainly didn't really understand that the basis of it was God's mercy. I kind of did, but not, not really. Right? So I brought a gift of myself and offered it, but I really offered it with wrong motives. So here's some of the ways we could do it with wrong motives. First, um, we do it uh, really as a way of making merit, right? That we have the sense that I need to give something to God to earn His favor or goodwill. So God says, I want your life. So we go, okay, well, if that's what He wants, I'll give my life. But I give it not on the basis of His mercy He's already poured out, but in order to get the mercy that He hasn't given yet, right? That's the wrong motive. That's misunderstanding everything that Paul has taught, everything that's true of the gospel. It is not a, min, a means of becoming a, a martyr to impress God, right? And now, you know, we, we know people like this, right? Who will go on and on about the incredible sacrifices they've made for God, right? And they're pretty convinced that when they get to heaven, they're going to get special rewards because of all the great sacrifices they've made for God and how impressed God is going to be, right? And certainly if God's not impressed, everybody else should be, right? Okay, that's not the kind of offering he's talking about here. Right? That's not it. Um, it is not a gift we give as a means of manipulating God to give us what we want. Right? I'm going to make sacrifice. I'm going to fast. I'm going to pray. I'm going to, I'm going to serve God. I'm going to give my life. I'm going to suffer for Jesus. Because I know if I do that, then God has to bless me. Right? Okay, that is not true worship. That is not giving God the sacrifice He desires. Right? It is trying to manipulate God. And that is not worship. That is not worship. It is not about earning God's love and favor or working our way into heaven or pleasing God so He will like us more. This is how it worked for me. I was, my, my whole life, for whatever screwed up reasons I am the way I am, I've been a people pleaser, right? Which means I desperately needed, uh, especially when I was younger, I needed people's approval. I needed people to tell me what a good person I was. And so I would do what they wanted, whatever they wanted, so that they would affirm me. Well, when I got saved, and I read this verse, and it says, give your life to God, because that's what He wants from you. I thought, well, if I want to please... And it even uses the word in this passage, please God, a, a, a offering that's pleasing to God. I thought, oh man, I want to please God so that He will affirm me. So He'll like me. right? Because I was convinced God could not like me as I was. right? I didn't understand grace. I didn't understand the nature of His love. So I gave my life as a living sacrifice. I told God I was going to serve and follow Him because I really was hoping God would someday after I had made lots of sacrifices, go finally, okay, Tim, now I kind of like you. Didn't so much before, but now, eh, I'm getting there. I'm warming up to you. 
Right? See, and, and if we give our life with that motive, it's an insult to God. Right? And here's why. Because God says, you know, I have already given you, when you were my enemies, okay, when you were against me, I gave you my son because I loved you so much. I gave you everything I had. I have given you the fullness of my love. And then you come to me and you, say, you have the nerve to say to me, God, what can I do to actually get you to love, love me? It's an insult, right? Because it's refusing to believe what He's already told us. And yet how many people give God sacrifice with that hope, right? It's missing the point. It's kind of like... Um, you know, have you ever got if you ever got invited by a, a business to a free dinner? You know, the free dinner. I know we, we go to this timeshare down in Phuket, and every time they want to give us a free $150 coupon, $150, which is about what it costs to buy dinner there. And uh, you know, you go and they give you this, and then they, they give you the dinner, and then they tell you on top of that that we've spent hundreds of dollars, maybe thousands, to make it possible for you to have this meeting. And they, they put all this stuff on you about what sacrifices they've made for you, you know. Uh, but at the end you find out it's not because they love you or even because they like you or care about you. It's because they want you to buy their timeshare, which is a mere 30000 U.S. dollars, right? So really generous they gave me a $150 coupon, right? Um, they're using you, right? It's not a gift. It's not an offering. It's we'll give you a little to make you feel compelled to buy what we're selling, right? Um, well, how many people have served God and made sacrifices because they thought God would bless them, would like them more, would love them more? Here's the test of it. Here's the test. If you've made sacrifices to serve and follow God, to you know, move to some foreign country and be a missionary, to follow God, you sold home and family, you left jobs, you left good careers, you could have been making millions, because you could have all been making millions, really. And you gave all that up, and you came, and you're serving God, right? And you're, you're being a living sacrifice, and life is hard, and you have to eat rice all the time, and it's hard, right? And it's hot, and you are sacrificing for God, right? Uh, and and God does not come through, right? God does not bless you. He uh, makes things harder. Maybe He doesn't provide for you financially like you thought He would. Maybe He doesn't protect you like He thought you would. You get, you get sick, you end up in the hospital. Maybe you lose a child or a loved one. And you go, God, look what I sacrificed for you, and you, you have cheated me. And I've heard many people, full-time servants of God, who are ticked off at God and bitter because God did not keep his end of the bargain, right? Because God failed them. Because I made sacrifices for you, God, and look at how you have treated me, right? Well, what was the motive for that sacrifice? What was the motive behind that service? Well, if we can't give it as a free offering and gift to God, and you know, this ought to be our attitude. I hate to say this, but this ought to be our attitude. We ought to have the attitude that says, the more I suffer, the better it is, because the more the gift is real. Right? Right? Jesus says, give your bodies as a living sacrifice, not give your bodies as a living vacation. Right? Uh, 
If it doesn't cost us anything, how much of a sacrifice it is it really? And God does bless. God blesses abundantly. He wants us to be filled with joy and goodness. He wants to pour out His mercy. He does love us, right? But is our offering in response to His goodness or as a means to obtain His goodness? If it's worship, if it's true worship, the spiritual, logical, rational worship to God, it must be in response to His overwhelming mercy that we give ourselves to Him in thankfulness and gratitude. God, You have done so much for me. I just want to give You my life in thanksgiving. And then when it gets hard and we suffer and we struggle and things don't go well, we praise God. Because I, I have been able to give God sacrifice. And it's my worship. right? So the only right honorable motive is one of logical worship. One of, um, of realizing the extent of God's love for us and responding to that love Responding to His mercy with joyfully giving my life to Him because I want to say thank you. Because I want to show my love and affection for Him. Uh, when St. Patrick first brought Christ to Ireland uh, back in the 4th, 5th century and shortly after that, uh, it was quite remarkable. And, and within Patrick's lifetime, about 25 years, most of the island had been exposed to the gospel, and many thousands came to Christ, and the, the, the whole culture of that land was, was dramatically changed overnight. And it was the first time the gospel had gone out since the days of Peter and Paul that the gospel went forward without any real uh, persecution or opposition uh, because they all, just, they all got saved, right? Uh, before that, there was always this resistance and always people coming against them. When people came to Christ... There were, there were martyrs, right? People died for their faith. Well, the Celts, when they first received the gospel, uh, nobody died. But the crazy Celts felt cheated. They're like, God, this isn't fair. Everybody else got to die for their faith, and we're living. That's not fair, right? We want to we give you that sacrifice. We want to die for you. But nobody wants to kill us. We don't know what to do. Right? Don't you have that problem? Right? So they didn't know what to do about this. They were confused. And they said, we want to be martyrs. We want to give our lives to God. We want to give our lives up for Him. So they invented what they called green, green, becoming a green martyr. A green martyr. Green martyrdom. And what they would do is they would sell everything they own and they would uh, give it all away and they would go off into some deep forest somewhere and sit under a tree or in a cave and they would just spend their day reading their Bible and praising God. Right? And the idea was that they were giving their life away in service and worship to God. And eventually what happened, even though they tried to uh, flee from society, because they prayed, because they loved God, God would bring people to them and they would begin to counsel and minister to people and pray for people. And pretty soon um, people were drawn to these, these green martyrs and they would move close to them. And before long, where they had lived out in the woods all by themselves, there were whole villages that sprung up around these guys as they shared the gospel and they discipled people and they told them how to live for God. And pretty soon, whole communities of believers sprang up and they started sending missionaries out. And they were responsible, really, for evangelizing much of Europe during that time period. 
But it started because they gave their life to God as worship in thankfulness and gratitude for what God had done for them. Um, So that's the basis, right? The basis must be what Christ has done for us. Our response in gratitude and thankfulness for His incredible gifts. And we respond by saying, okay, I want to give a fitting gift. I want to give a suitable offering. So what is the suitable offering? Well, he says, uh, I appeal to you by the mercies of God that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Right? What is a suitable and fitting gift? What could we possibly give God in response for what he has given us? His son. He's given us eternal life. He's given us forgiveness. He's given us his mercy. What, what gift would be fitting in response to that? Um, well, we are to give him a total sacrifice, our bodies, right? Um, now, a lot of people have debated why he said, why he used the word bodies and not souls or spirits or a whole life. Or, um, I think in this context, in the, in the image, imagery of, of a sacrifice, body is a good term, right? Because we, we have this, this offering we carry with us and we lay it on the altar, right? But it really it does speak of our whole life. It doesn't mean that we give our body and not our brain or not our spirit or our heart. It means all of us, right? It's a total sacrifice. We give to him everything that we are and have. Uh, Personality, mind, thoughts, everything. We lay on the altar and we give it to him. Uh, And thankfully it is a sacrifice which is a living one. Uh, We give him our life. And we live that life like the green martyrs. We live live that life to him. Um, body also is a great picture of how we as spirit beings made spirit new life in Christ interact with the material world. Okay, the contact point in us between our spiritual self and the world we live in is our bodies. So in our relationships with other people, our relationships with creation, with society, all that interacts through our body. So this is not spiritual in the sense that uh, it's something I do inwardly, just only in my soul. It's how I use my body, my life, my existence as I interact in the real world to give it as a sacrifice to God. So it's not spiritual in the sense that I retreat away from life, but it means that I engage in life and I do it in a way that is service and worship to God. Um, and I think what's involved in this sacrifice, this total sacrifice, it means to lay aside our own agenda purpose, goals, plans, ideas, and values. Okay, got that list? Don't want to miss any. (laughs) Purpose, goals, agenda, values, ideas, everything, right? Everything. We lay it before God and we, we, we walk away from it, right? We walk away from it and we take up instead God's goals, God's will, God's agenda, God's purpose, God's values. Right? This isn't about saying this. And a lot of times, you know, we're great at this. We've got our ideas. We've got our plans. And, we're, and they're, good, you know, they're not evil plans. They're good plans. They're plans for how we're going to do good stuff for God. And we go to God and we say, God, I've got these great ideas and I want you to bless my ideas. Because surely you couldn't have an idea as good as mine. Right? And so I'm going to ask that you bless my will. Right? That's not what he's talking about here. We lay down our will, our agenda, our purpose, and we take up His. We say, God, I want to live my life for you. I want your will and purpose to be done. Jesus Himself did this. 
Um, as he uh, as he followed the Father, uh, John chapter five, he says, "I tell you the truth: the Son can do nothing by himself. He does only what he sees the Father doing. Whatever the Father does, the Son does." Jesus had no will of his own. He lived for the Father's will. And that's what it means. We live totally for God's will and purpose. We seek what He wants, not what I want. So we dedicate ourselves fully to His purpose. And we give Him all of me, right? We don't offer just the hand or just the foot. We offer our whole self, which means uh, it's not fitting. It's not suitable to say, God, you know, God, I'll give you Sunday mornings. They're all yours. You know, I happen to be free then. The rest of the week I'm kind of full, though. I'm kind of busy. Wish I could give you more. But I'll gladly squeeze in Sunday morning. You know. No, he says, you, give, you either give me all or nothing. There's really nothing in between. You don't say, God, you know, I happen to be a super talented musician, and I'm willing to use my talents for you. As long as I'm up on stage and people can see how talented I am, I would love to give you that gift, right? Um, when we lay those things before God, when we lay all that before Him, you know, God could say this. God could say, you know, you're a talented musician. I don't want that, right? In my life, this is how it's worked. God has said, yeah, I know you're good at that, but here's what I really want you to do. And I have to say to God, but God, I'm not good at that. I've never done that, and I don't know how. And God says, perfect. I like that, right? That's what I want you to do. I want you to be a preacher. I don't like people, and I hate being in front of people. And you want me to be a preacher, right? I don't want to be a preacher. Right? Crowds scare me. So it's good. I like that. Okay? It'll be a sacrifice. Right? That's how God works. He wants us to do His will. And we lay it before Him and we give Him all of that I am. All that I uh, belong. All that I am belongs to Him. And he gets, the, he gets to decide the course and path of my life. That's what it means. I lay my life before Him. I say, God... I want to do your will. I will go wherever you send me. I will do whatever you ask. I will follow you in whatever you require of me. Okay? And of course, there's a lot of things, and we'll see it as, as Roman goes on. There's a lot of clear, obvious things that God says you can't do. You can't live in sin. If you're going to commit your life and follow me, you're going to give a life of worship. You cannot use your eyes to look at lustful things. You cannot use your hands to steal or hurt other people. Right? But beyond that, you must use your life to serve as I direct you and in the way I lead you according to my purpose and my plan. Right? And I guarantee for me, I don't know how it works for you, but for me, nothing God has led me into would have been anything I would have chose for myself. Right? Guaranteed. Which is why, even though I gave my life as a living sacrifice, I keep trying to run off the altar and run away. Right? Because God keeps leading me in these ways. I'm going, no, not that. Right? But if we make that commitment, we agree to follow him. Paul also says that it is a worthy sacrifice. It's a total sacrifice. It is a worthy sacrifice. It is holy and acceptable. Um, what is it that makes us a holy sacrifice, a worthy and acceptable sacrifice? In the Old Testament, you could not go to your flock of sheep and look at all the sheep and go, you know, that one looks like it's about to die. It's scrawny, diseased. I think I'll give that one to God because it's going to die anyway, right? To do that would be 
huge sin, right? You had to bring a sacrifice that was without spot or blemish. It had to be perfect in every way. It had to be your best, right? It had to be the best. Well, uh, you know, when we bring our bodies as a living sacrifice, I feel like I am not a worthy sacrifice. Right? I know my sin. I know the blemishes and the spots in me. And I feel like, God, I can't give you my life because it's not worthy. Um, praise God, it has been made worthy, not by my doing, but by the blood of Christ. Right? We have been made perfect and spotless through the righteousness of Christ. So this is a sacrifice that a person cannot give until they have been made right with God through the blood of Christ. An unbeliever cannot give their life to God. It would be an offense to him. Right? It must be made right first through the blood of Christ. Then it is a holy and a fitting sacrifice. Uh, lastly, it is a daily sacrifice. <clears throat> um, it is something we must do regularly. And there's a lot of debate over this. You know, is Paul talking here about a once in a lifetime thing, once and for all? Or is it a daily thing? And part of what makes it complicated is the verb form he uses here implies something that's done once, right? It's not a continuous verb, it's a single act verb. So a lot of people think, well, he's talking here about a one-time act. Um, But because it is a living sacrifice, and because we are to be presenting it continually, I think he really has two things in mind here. And it's, it's really both. It is a one-time act, and it is a daily practice. And really, if we think about it in terms of uh, you know, other goals, commitments we make, say we want to run a marathon or learn to play a musical instrument or get in shape, um, it takes kind of two steps. First, we have to make a commitment or decision that we're going we're gonna to do this. Right? I'm going to be a marathon. I just don't accidentally fall into that. Okay? Uh, it takes a lot of crazy thinking first, right? If I'm going to become a master pianist, I just don't fall into that, right? At some point in my past, I had to make a commitment that, you know, I want to do this. I want my life, I want to gain this skill, right? And it probably involves some, some pre-planning and, and commitment and decision. We need to uh, rearrange our schedule. We need to buy equipment. It's hard to become a good piano player if you don't have a piano. We need to go out and, and buy, the, buy the piano, if you're going to be a runner, you know, you need shoes, you need equipment. You may need to get a teacher or get how-to books or uh, a coach, somebody who can help you, right? That's the initial upfront commitment. I'm going to do this. I'm, I'm making plans and I'm going to figure this out. I'm going to commit to it, right? It's a decisive one-time act. But then there's the daily process of, of living it out, right? Once you get the piano and the teacher and you put you know, a time in your schedule to practice for two hours every day. Well, then you've got to actually sit down for those two hours and you've got to practice. You've got to go out and run. You've got to do the things required daily to carry out that one-time commitment to get you to the goal. Right? Same thing's true for us. Uh, if you've never in your life come to a point of decision where you said, yes, I want my gift to God to be my whole self, you need to make that conscious, deliberate choice to do that. Right? You just don't fall into it. Because what will happen is you will give God little pieces of yourself, but until you commit and decide to give Him everything, to lay everything before Him, to let Him be the ruler and guide of your life, that He gets to call the shots on where you live and how you live and how you spend your time. Right? 
If you don't make a commitment to that, the best you'll ever give him is little bits and pieces. You'll give him Sunday morning. You give him this little niche here, that little niche there. Right? There has to be a point of decision where you say, in light of what God has done for me, I give him everything. Not to get his love, not so he'll bless me, but because I want to pour my life out as a sacrifice of thanksgiving and praise to him. God, I lay it all before you. What do you want me to do? Where do you want me to go? Right? But then every morning when we get up, we got to figure out how to live that out. Okay. Uh, he may send you to Thailand. He may send you to somewhere else. Right? But every morning you got to get up and you got to think, God, today, today where I'm at now, how can I be living my life in service to you? Right? It's a daily thing as well. And if it's never a daily thing, then it's never really a true sacrifice, right? We've got to be living that out every day. And from my own experience, it kind of worked like this. When I gave my life to God for, when I was 14 years old, um, you know, it was easy to think that someday I would go serve God and do this and be whatever. That was easy, right? Until it actually came down to it. And God said, well, you gave me your life, and you said I could send you wherever. I'm sending you here now, Right? And it's like, ooh, when it comes to the actual doing, it's harder, right? But you say, no, I gave my life to God. I must keep that promise. I must follow him as my gift of thanksgiving. Um, so coming back full circle, uh, how does this really express worship? Well, worship, you know, comes from the word, you know, worth-ship. It's the, idea, it's the idea that you show that something is worth it, right? And the question comes to the end, you know, give your lives to God, a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable, which is your true worship. The question is, is God worth it? Right? To you, is God worth the sacrifice of your whole life. Um, That's the question we must answer. Um, Sometimes we as guys ought to worship our wives. I don't mean in the sense that we worship God, but it is good and valuable for our wives to know they are worth it. right? And so uh, you should buy them things once in a while. And uh, not cheap things, right? Because you want them to have a sense that they're worth more than just a cheap thing. Right? You want to have a sense that they're worth a lot. And sometimes it may mean making sacrifices. Um, and sometimes the sacrifices are hard, right? For me and, and for Denise and I, uh, you know, we're very different. Just in every way, we're opposite. And um, just to illustrate how opposite we are, uh, if, if you were to ask me what my ultimate dream vacation would be, my ultimate dream vacation would be climbing some peak in the Himalayas. It's at least 20,000 feet or above. 20,000 is kind of like the, you know, the benchmark of, of a real mountain. So, um, so my, my dream vacation is above 20,000 feet. Denise's dream vacation is at sea level. Okay? It is at the beach. It's on a cruise ship. Right? It's at sea level. Well, last year and a half ago, it was our 30th anniversary so for our 30th anniversary, uh, you know, I gave Denise her dream vacation, which meant sacrificing my dream at some level, because we couldn't do both, right? 
20,000 foot difference, right? Can't do both. You've got to choose one. But I did it because I wanted her to know she was worth it, right? Well, is God worth it, right? And the real question is not, is God worth it? But how much is God worth it, right? Is God worth our trinkets and our little, you know, leftovers? Or in light of all this he has done for us, is he worth everything? Is he worth every? Is he worth our whole life? You know, we get this window on earth between the day we're born and the day we die. We get this window of opportunity to show God how much he is worth it, that we will never have any in heaven, right? Because the sacrifices, the giving of our life now, we can't do that like we do now in heaven, right? We only get this shot at it. And I'll tell you what, there's going to be a lot of people get to heaven who are going to look back on their life on earth and they were going to, they're going to have this regret that they did not give God what they wish they would have because they find out too late how much he's worth. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.